So tonight our program is with uh, Peter Regas. This program, I think the first time we met Peter was perhaps 10 years ago. Yeah. And it was a program with um, Tony Buccini. Tony Buccini, that's right. Yes. A memorable and then after, one. Yes, it was. Well, anything he does is 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 very thorough, just like I love yourself. Him. Just like yourself. And uh, and then afterwards, we went to Nella's for pizza. That's right. You've got a great memory, Kathy. Yeah, well, because I because I, I people kept saying, he's doing research on pizza. Yeah. And I said, good, let's have him in for a program sometime. And 10 plus years later, for me, it that's finally fast, happened. For, for me, that's light speed. I'm really lazy. <laughs> so um, I, I'm going to turn this over to Peter because he is very thorough and detailed, and you're going to learn a lot, a lot, correct? Oh, well, you I will. hope so. I you hope will. so. You will. Well, thanks, Kathy. This is an honor for me to finally be here um, after I've gotten to a stage. It's been about 12 years since I started this project in 2009. It originally was supposed to be very simple, maybe a few weeks, uh, and to learn a little bit more about the history of Deep Dish. I um, had a a meeting with Tim Samuelson back in early 2009, and we sort of laughed about it, and I said someone should be recording all their stories. And um, the way I remember it, I don't know if it's true, but the way I remember it, he said, well, why don't you do it? And I, it was a stage that he hit me right at the right time, that I wanted to learn more, and I didn't want this story to go away, uh, not just the deep dish story, but the entire story. I was for whatever reason, I was gifted with the curiosity on the history of pizza, and I, uh, at times I can't help myself. So uh, this is going to be just a, a really um, easy, simple, with a lot of the pictures, and I'll try to be as general as possible. You really don't need to read the text. The text is there j just for me to remember the things I'm supposed to say. Uh, and I, I want to sort of get the um, the idea out that the perception versus the reality of things that happen so that the sort of the big ideas that happen with pizza is that the not unlike a lot of other histories the survivors got to tell their stories which doesn't make it true obviously it just uh you know you get a survival the bias and i saw that that at the very beginning and i thought that was probably an interesting you know, at the same time i mean i, I thought it was interesting uh, subject to do because I thought it'd be a rich field for some new stuff to be produced. On the other hand, it sort of made me mad, um, which may be a little bit strong word, but anyway, so I was curious on deep dish in 2009 and I started stumbling around and I heard about Tom Granado in Chicago, a name I'd never heard about before. Is he the, did he start pizza or did it really started pizzeria uno or whatever? And then I started to get national and thinking, well, how did it actually come to America? And now within the last few years, I've started been thinking about Naples and how did it really work there? Um, a lot of this history comes from secondary sources. So um, take that with a big, the grain of salt. I mean, the history that's already been out there, the stuff that I'm gonna show today, I've tried very, very hard to use as many primary sources as possible. Um, and it differs from the history that we've been told for a number of decades, such that I don't know how many people actually follow this stuff, but a few of us do. And uh, a few of us are actively involved in the search. I'm an amateur, but there are a few professionals that I'd like to thank at the bottom of the screen. Scott Weiner out of New York City, 
Colin Kaplan out of New Haven and Kendall Bruns out of Chicago that has the U.S. Pizza Museum online. Uh, they're the ones that are actively involved in the research and uh, are really um, tied into to the pizza world, which, like everything else, has become more complicated, more um, the network-centered. Everyone seemingly knows everyone now. And a lot of the history just in the last five years has just been completely changed. So with the digitization that's happened in the world, you can actually solve some of the problems that maybe 20 or 30 years ago would have been impossible to solve, practically impossible, such that now you can legitimately do hundreds of genealogies a year, which I would never have even approach this if I couldn't do that. Um, and a lot of the newspapers have been digitized, which really does help tremendously. We still have blanks though. Uh, and so we're going to get into that. So at the beginning of it, so just I'm going to talk about how pizza basically came to America and how it eventually came to Chicago. You see some similarities with the national story with Chicago and you see some distinct differences. Um, the picture you see on the front screen here is Tom Granato and his wife and three Hollywood stars. Uh, if people are old enough to remember that man with the bulging eyes, that's Jerry Colonna, who used to work with Bob Hope. I think that picture was taken in, in the 1950 in the pizzeria. And that's one of the rare images of a Granado of the pizza. So right off the bat, you can see that's not a tavern pizza. That's not a bakery pizza. Uh, that's not exactly like a New York pizza, but that's typically what an old style New York pizza would kind of be like. Thin crust. Uh, they didn't cut it into the wedges now, but... Um, uh, that would have been cut into wedges, not in a party cut or a tavern cut or not in a um, anything else. So sort of a traditional thing. So we're going to get into that. It's going to be nice and easy. I'm here for as long as you want. My contact information is on the front page here. Feel free to email me. I do have a blog that I have even more information on about this stuff and much, much more. Um, so you can follow that there. This screen will be at the end. So when we do the Q&A, you'll be able to see all the contact information there. So. Let's get right into it, and uh, we're, we're going to talk, just do some householding things about the background, about where all these people were coming from, and uh, just some basic information so we're all on the same page. So let me get on. Okay. So let me cancel this out. Okay. So when we talk about the early pizzeria men, and it really pretty much is men, uh, there are a few examples of some of the women. Uh, certainly, they were helping, but in terms of the main proprietor, it was almost universally, universally men before 1920. Um, they pretty much all came from the same region of Italy, which is the Campania of the region, which people who know Naples and pizza, it's not exactly a bulletin to think that pizza started in Naples, and therefore you would think that the people who are most familiar with pizza with the pizza either as a producer or a consumer should be in the Campania region. So it's exactly what we probably should could have expected. Uh, but we, it, it's just unusual to see the amount of people and particularly the early ones. So I'm talking about the uh, people before prohibition and before even 1933 when uh, prohibition was lifted. It was predominantly people from the Campania, the region who were getting into the, into the business. And mainly those early people who got into the business were coming from a bakery tradition. Not all of them, but that was the main point. So you were a Campania baker from that point of view. And uh, different regions of the United States got a different al allocation of people in that, in that uh, 
category. And uh, some cities developed a pizza culture and some didn't. But anyway, so this is the Campania the region on the left. And uh, it, you know, the way Italy is structured, it's into the regions and within each of the regions, it's the provinces. And the name of the province is the capital city of the province. So the province of Naples, capital city is Napoli. Uh, so there are three provinces that we're really going to be particular on for, for the early guys is Napoli, Avellino, and Salerno. And right in that border between the three of them is right about where the earliest pizzeria men came from. Basilicata, uh, um, right around that area. So you can go to the, the right-hand side of the screen. And I've overlaid some of the men. Uh, the names aren't particularly important now, but you can see them sort of clustering. And the earliest ones were clustering on Barcigliona, uh, Siano, uh, Castle San Giorgio, around that area. There, there's also an interesting one, a very interesting one, uh, sort of a sole man was uh, bringing his culture, and that's near um, Sorrento. So the man Maloney down at the bottom of it is an interesting one. And then, of course, you get a cluster of people coming from the capital city of the Naples, and um, they're the only thing. So these are men who started pizzerias in the United States before 1930 um, and even before 1915. So the earliest records that we know of, this is where they came from. And uh, go along. And so sort of a, a definitional thing that I wanna get out there is sort of fundamental. And that is, it's sort of obvious that people from Southern Italy or the Campania region who came from a food culture with pizza would bring it to America. And then some of them would become bakers and some of them would make pizza. In fact, a lot of them would. And so, so what? So what's the story? And so I think it's important enough to document who was baking when and where and who they were. That's an interesting thing, but it's not, it's not terribly surprising that a baker from Campania would make pizza. The key distinction I'm making is that, is he making, is he a dedicated pizzeria? Is he making his dough primarily to make bread? And then with that same dough, he's preparing some sheet to pizza? Or is he making, for whatever reason, dough primarily to make pizza? That's the key distinction that I'm making. So both are interesting people to document. I think it's relatively trivial to say that if, for example, what we know of, the first um, baker who's actually owning a bakery in New York City that I've been able to document from the Campania the region is 1885. I don't know what that man baked. But I suspect it was bread and I suspect it was pizza. And that suspicion, you could, you know, I think it's more probable than not he was making the pizza along with the bread. I don't know that though. It's just the background and all of the information and going through all these people, the way it worked, that would have seemed logical to me. Um, but so we sometimes get into the thing of saying, well, you know, we had bakeries here in Chicago since the before World War I. Indeed, there's um, a letter to the editor in the Tribune in the 50s complaining that the Tribune got their story wrong about where were these Italians with this craze of the pizza that started in the 50s, where were they all the time? Why didn't they have pizza in Chicago? And the man writes back and he said, well, I don't know about you guys, but I got pizza from a peddler in the near west side and uh, it's really no big deal. We've had it all along. Um, 
So this is what we're getting at with these photographs here. So this is actually for people in Chicago would probably know this name. This is the old Pompeii Bakery on South Volumus. This is Alfonso Davino, the son of the, the original proprietor, Luigi. And this is sort of a perfect example of that sort of type of baker. This is sort of the archetypical sort of uh, the photographs where he's preparing the bread, which was almost certainly the primary product he was doing. And then on the right, he's preparing sheet pan, the pizza, almost certainly with the same dough and uh, using the same oven, probably with almost the exact same temperature he cooked the bread in. Now, is he a pizzeria? Sure. Technically he is. He's preparing, he's baking, and he's selling the pizza at his spot. So he's a pizzeria. But I'm saying that's not what we're going to concentrate on today because that's uh, sort of a trivial thing to get out of uh, these Campania based, the bakers who are coming. We're really trying to get more resolution in the information to find out actually who is actually committing to this product called pizza. And that reflects on the consumers. What was the demand like? And how did the business really develop so that you got these pizzerias that were sort of like cafes at night and they would have their wine? And uh, the hint of bread or being just a bread, the baker was just completely different. So just completely the different, the culture. So anyway, I love these, uh, the photographs because it captures a time in the mid seventies of Chicago and the baking and just like at the cusp of when the old, the bakers were going away. Unfortunately, these don't really exist at all anymore. Uh, for those who are interesting, these images came from the library of Congress who's a repository from some of the folklore projects that were involved in the 70s that was kind of big at that time. And there was actually uh, a folklorist who went around Chicago and talked to a lot of the Italians. And luckily enough for the project that I'm doing, she talked to one of the Divinos. So there's audio of him talking about the business and these beautiful the photographs. So uh, that's a distinction. And we're going to make one more distinction. So you could also have a peddler and you can also have, especially popular in Italy, they would fry it on the sidewalk and you would have fried the pizza. This is a photograph from the Library of Congress from the Naples that I think it shows a couple things. One, if you see the arrow there, it's showing the actual fryer, that primitive um, stovetop with the pan on top with the oil and they would fry the dough and then they would top the dough after they fried it and there you go. There's your the pizza. So you know, is this a pizzeria? If, if they do it in front of a bakery, is that a pizzeria? Again, that's not really what we're talking about. I speculate that this could have been the earliest involvement of pizza in the United States because obviously you wouldn't need an oven, even you wouldn't need any rent, you wouldn't need any capital law. You just need this basic pr pr primitive fryer uh, that you would um, uh, the fry up your dough. Um, I also think secondarily, uh, sometimes when I get involved in the research, uh, you re research this stuff so intensively, and then you look at these pictures and they're so primitive. And sometimes you go to the pizzerias and they're so small and dinky and you think, wait, this is what I spent a decade of my life on. It, it's, it's sobering to see how uh, raw things were back then. And we're, ta and we're talking about a food that was really in the slums of not only Naples, but uh, certainly New York. Um, so anyway, uh, now we're going to get to the part that we're actually going to talk about the whole, the rest of the lecture, and that's the dedicated, the pizzerias. So we do have historical pizzerias in the United States. Again, this is not a complete list, I'll say, uh, for anyone who's partial to 
the Massachusetts or Pennsylvania, I have not included those in, or California. Uh, but these are the main, the players historically, who are still involved in a business now. Uh, these are the uh, the families, if they're still there, and most of them are still there in some variety, who would tell the reporters the stories, and that's how they would get their the history recorded. That's the the article started to come out in the fifties in um, the major way when when pizza become a national phenomena and the reporters would go to the still existing old pizzerias and these are those and um so we can tell a couple things one these are basically all on the east coast um the majority of them are in new york city uh new york city is on the top and johnny's is on the bottom extreme left which is in westchester county so effectively still almost to New York City. And then we have three major ones in Connecticut. And then we have the New Jersey contingent, which is now, which originated in, in Trenton, but is now in the suburbs of uh, the Trenton. And this looks simple, but, um, I, and I've also put in the establishment dates or years, which is uh, seemingly a simple thing. Like when did they start the business? But it's, once you get into it, it's like, well, this is a mess because do you count grandfather who was at a different spot you count the same, the business, if it stopped for a decade or two decades, and then you reopen it up at a secondary, the business, but you're just the face guy for it. I try to get everyone on the same level. So it's interesting. A lot of these years are lower or earlier than the business's claim. So it's just the reverse. You would think that they would hype the business more, but say example, John's on the Laker Street uh, in the upper, the left there. Uh, they actually claim on their signage and on their advertisements, it was established in 1929. Uh, the research I've done takes it all the way back to 1915 and even possibly even 1914. Um, it's a different owner, but it's still the same business. Um, and to be frank, they don't even know about this guy, I think. Um, the lack of the knowledge in the families should not be at all surprising, I guess, but uh, it is considerable. So there's been a lot of dilution in terms of the history and a lot of things like they heard from a relative and then they got passed along and now it's fact. Uh, it just isn't true once you see the primary sources. So the earliest one in the picture is in the upper of the left, and that's Lombardi's, which is the the major historical pizzeria in America. It's complicated because they shut down in the, well, they had a, the matriarch died in 1974. They changed cuisine so they were still maybe able to fry a pizza, but they really weren't in the pizza business for about 10 years. And then they closed down for good for 15 years and then they reopened at a different spot in 1994. And once that happened, the revival of the history started to gain steam. The reporters started to get intrigued by this idea of artisanal pizza and the pizza of the culture of the United States and what exactly happened and uh, all that fun stuff. Um, I don't talk about it usually too much, but I think it, you know, it's a natural thing to ask. Like I've had almost all of these except for the Mario's which was my favorite if I had to choose one, uh, it would be Sally's at the bottom in the middle and Titano's right above Sally's. Um, it's a little bit weird because for the Sally's one, I've gone there twice and you wait three hours to get your pizza. 
The first time it was two hours in line and one hour at the table. And the uh, the second time it was just the, the reverse. So at a certain part of this, it's so subjective that you're so starving at that time and you're the desperate that you love to get the pizza. And, but it, it's still, uh, to me, it's sort of the iconic uh, the pizza still. Anyway, so that's the background that the reporters came from. These were the ones that they would have talked to and heard their stories and recorded their stories. And in retrospect, uh, they put too much emphasis on these folks. There was a vast survival, the bias that happened when you can imagine a lot of the families didn't make it into the 40s, didn't make it into the 30s. They died out. Uh, they went into different the businesses. They went back to Italy, a lot of them. Um, and their histories were never recorded. Some of them didn't have any children. So who's going to record them if you don't do it yourself? Uh, so these are the natural sort of problems they have. So this is what I came to. And uh, this is the sort of archetypical article that was put up at the New York Times in 1998 uh, when Lombardi's had opened in the 94. And you started to get this pizza culture revitalizing itself all over again. It's claimed, and I believe it, that in the um, that in the 70s and the 80s, it was dying out. So these old time spots with their coal ovens and all that stuff, those were becoming a relic and the chains were taking over more and the different generations were, you know, some were leaving and some were, were um, not interested in the business and so the businesses were not surviving. So we almost lost the original pizzerias in the 80s. So this is what the sort of the tone of the article was. And the basic point was they went back to Lombardi's when they opened and the claim was Gennaro Lombardi. And you can read it right there. New York pizza, New York pizza did not exist before 1905 when Gennaro Lombardi and Neapolitan immigrant began to sell pies in his grocery store in Little Italy, maybe Manhattan on Spring Street. Lombardi's was by most accounts the first New York pizzeria and Mr. Lombardi who hired and trained a series of other immigrants became the sturdy tap root of a tree of family and acquaintances who define great New York pizza. And on the root, it actually does say even further, it goes, opened Lombardi's, Gennaro Lombardi, perhaps the first pizzeria in the United States in 1905. And so that sort of image stuck with a lot of the authors of books and everything that Lombardi, Gennaro Lombardi, he was the focal point of everything. And I saw that and I was like, well, that seems a little bit interesting to me that uh, they don't take it seemingly account. They don't present any evidence with primary sources. And there's no talk of people who were back then who didn't survive. So there's got to be more. It's, it's more complicated than the story than the way they're projecting not unreasonably. He's a reporter and he read the first the draft of history. And that's perfectly reasonable. So. You know, he didn't have 10 years to go back in the archives and find out who really did all the work. So anyway, it's an interesting um, perception versus re reality issue. So next one. So my strategy was to really hammer home and get as many primary sources as I could possibly find. Uh, and, you know, luckily enough, I had cousins and sisters who were in the strategic cities of Manhattan and Washington and California and were extremely kind to of me to take me in at times. And so I could do the research for weeks on end. And I have a job that would accommodate that, that basically I can stand in front of a computer all day. Um, so here's just some of the issues that are really fundamental to the research that are basically the main problems and the opportunities that we do have. 
Uh, let's start with the problems first and get that done with. So the problem we have is that we don't know the business names. And why that's important is because we're trying to distinguish between what they were baking. So the classic problem is that you have a city directory. You don't have to have a telephone. This was a city directory that supposedly had all the proprietors of all the businesses on that given year and broke it down with occupation. So they would have the bakery section and they would have the name of the proprietor and the address. The address was almost always right. The name of the proprietor could be a little bit wrong at times because they're Italian and the reporter and the canvassers was not Italian. So they would screw up the spelling at times, but that's fine. The really major issue is they just have it by surname. Uh, and so how do you know what they were making? How do you know what's a pizzeria and what's just a bakery section, a bread, the baker, or maybe they made biscotti, who knows? You just don't know if you don't have the name. And even the name sometimes isn't definitive. So that's a major problem. In fact, the major problem is that we don't have a listing of the names. Now, there is such a thing as a doing business as index that we have in the modern era now. Unfortunately, as you can imagine, back in the teens and the 20s, that was rarely used at all with sole proprietorships in these major cities. Chicago didn't even have one as I as best that I can tell into the 1940. New York did have one, but they had a massive compliance issue. So basically, you really can't find a name, a, a, a business name uh, before 1920, which is, of course, the key the period for us. Um, likewise, there's very few pizza articles in the papers before 1930. They just, there are a few and they're very significant, but they're few and far between. Uh, we would have loved to have some sort of uh, reportage that went in there and talked to the proprietor and documented it. And we just don't have that, really. We have a little bit of a sketch. We have some very intriguing things. Uh, but there we are. So, And then uh, very few ads and very few photos, uh, very few photos of actual the pizzas at the time in the United States. Uh, we can infer a little bit by going back to Naples and saying, well, if it was there in Naples, it would have been similar here. But, you know, that's a little bit of an assumption to make that you, you re really not like to make that sort of the leap of faith. But anyway, so there are some significant problems here and uh, uh, you just have to deal with those. And But there are unique opportunities with particular Italians of that time and particular Italians in New York City at that time. So the major thing was is that these are almost exclusively family businesses. And with family businesses, the family histories should match their businesses. So they would, you can deduce things from the family histories that you can have. And with the digitization of the documents now, it's just extraordinary. So for example, you would tend to get at the time, people from the same cities and areas in Italy clustering together in the same neighborhoods in Manhattan. You would tend to get the baker living right above the bakery in the census, um, all sorts of things like that, essentially. Um, it really paid to look at the widest the network as possible when you study the family. Anyway, we also in New York, uniquely as opposed to Chicago or Illinois, they had a state census every five years that were off years of the, of the federal census. So, if you combine them with someone who came to New York in 1899, you would theoretically have him in the in the 1900 census, the state census from 05, the federal from 10, the state in 15, the federal in 20, the 
the state in 25 and the federal in 30, which is just extraordinary for uh, the coverage of that, which really does help dramatically. Um, the one, the biggest source though, it comes back to these business city directories. Um, those are the golden source to look at that gives you comprehensive coverage of who was doing what in terms of a proprietorship. If you were a worker, it would be very uncertain whether you would even make that directory um, at all um, in any form of a directory. So they tend to have the people in the business directory were in the general directory too. Uh, these directories were mainly used for advertisements and for solicitation. And so we have this golden period where the barrels of the New York City were consolidated in 1898. And that's just the time we get the best of the directories happening. And we even get multiple types of directories. So we get different, the companies competing against each other and the directories differ a little bit and the differences are relevant. And um, you see some, what look to be pizzerias described differently, like they can't classify it. Is it a bakery? Is it a grocery? Is it a restaurant? Is it a delicatessen? It differs where you look, uh, but it's the same guy. It's the same address. Um, so that gets intriguing. Uh, but the golden time is 1898 to 1913 for all the boroughs. For Manhattan, we have a benefit and the Bronx, we can even go earlier than that and later than that. But if you're in Brooklyn, basically that's the golden time, 18, the 98 and the 1930. There's another directory that comes in in the early 30s that was a WPA, the project, um, which is a value, but we miss particularly in Brooklyn. Everything after the 1913 to 1932 essentially is just uh, a ghost time. You have to go by the census or hopefully they had a telephone and that's it. Uh, so that's a blind spot. So all these things come with a real opportunities, but also the blind spots. Another huge opportunity is. New York City photograph for tax purposes, in theory, every building in all the boroughs in circa 1940. So you can almost use that as a time machine if you really want to push it um, and just essentially walk down the street in the 1940 and see through the, you know, the signs and the windows and see what the people were doing and all that. And it is extremely helpful in terms of documenting what existed as of about 1940 in the New York City, which is, I mean, I'm not going to break any secrets here. The, New York City is the major city for pizza in the United States. There's no, not quality I'm not talking about. I'm just talking about historical wise. They had the largest numbers. They were the earliest. Uh, they were arguably... Um, depending on how you want to argue, it's somewhat the most authentic, but that's a co co controversial point. Anyway, if you want to know anything about America, New York City is the city to study. There's just no other way to get around it. I've often thought, why is Chicago different? But that's the wrong question to ask. I finally discovered. The real question is, Chicago is very similar to other cities. It's why is New York City so different from everyone else? Um, interesting things. I mean, that they had a lot of Italians there. They certainly had a density there that no other city I don't think really had on a scale. So their culture was evolved in a different way. Um, it, just to finish up here, you can't get around, just an amazing, just in the last, I'd say five to seven years, the amount of newspapers archival from the 20s and the 30s and the 40s being digitized is just extraordinary. I mean, there is some speculation that we'll be able to digitize every paper in the United States in the next decade or two, uh, which is just 
And I, when I started out this, there would be no expectation that that could happen. So that's just a pure the lucky bike. Depending on the site you're on, you can even go through books and to look at that. And a lot of the photographs have been scanned through too. So you can do a lot more online that you don't actually go to the archive to sit through all the photographs. Um, the question that really sort of intrigues me is that why, what was the drive to open up a Pates reel? Was it coming from a demand side or is this the only skill these guys knew how to do? And that's what the business that they were gonna go into. Uh, it's hard to answer that. We don't have a diary, really. Uh, we don't have uh, an audio interview from, from the 1930s that we've discovered yet. Hopefully it'll come, but we don't know about it. Uh, so the way I like to consider that, and when I'm at my, um, the most ambitious is to document these social the networks. So it's not just documenting the people who were the primary pizza, the makers in the teens and the twenties and the thirties, but documenting the linkages to other pizza makers. So you can think about that in a business context, and you can think about that in a social context too, and both are relevant for the development of the business. Uh, but anyway, so that's the strategy. Find the primary sources. When you can't find them, try harder. And when you really can't find them, just wait because things tend to just pop up at times in the most unexpected places. And uh, almost every problem has been resolved that I've really wanted. There are still uh, wish the list of things that I'd love to get, obviously, but uh, I had no expectation to find them in, in the first place. So I'm way beyond the fact that when I first began, I never expected to really get this far at all. Um, let's go again. So anyway, so the real question was when these reporters in the 1990s were going around and they were writing about Lombardi, what was the primary source that they were relying upon as verification for all the claims that he was making? So again, the primary claim was Gennaro Lombardi opened up the first licensed pizzeria in America in 1905. Um, it was claimed that he had a grocery store before and that he decided to switch on to pizza and that he got the first license, which when I heard that, it's problematic for another as why would the license be so important when we're really interested in pizza? What was the license? Where is the license? Who's seen the license? Why can't they show the license? Where is the license? What was it even called? And uh, so far as we know, my, I've had this story out for about two years now, there's been no the license. No one has come forward and said they've actually seen the license. I don't know what happened. I, I can only attribute it in the kindest way is that it was probably a family story that got a little out of control, that someone heard that he registered the name or something akin to that, and maybe he was the first pizzeria in that document or something like that. It doesn't make too much sense to me. It really only makes sense if you're going to think about it that way for verification of who was a pizzeria so that if you could go to that list of names that were the licensed, you can say, well, no one's actually claimed to be a pizzeria yet. We're the first ones, which makes some sense. But anyway, so the one thing that they did have a document of is they had this picture and it's the most famous, the picture in U.S pizza history, which is kind of funny to say, but it's true. This has been in documentaries. This has been in books. This has been um, prominent in the businesses. And what it shows is it shows the pizzeria that Gennaro Lombardi owned on 53 Spring Street in Manhattan. And the question is, when was the photo taken? Now, Gennaro Lombardi is the gentleman on the right. The gentleman on the left is his aide, uh, Antonio Perro. 
Um, and we still get back. So they put as a family, when they reproduce the photograph, they put the label at, at the bottom of it. But that was not done con contemporaneously of when they did the photograph. Um, so that's the big thing. How do you determine when this photo was taken? And I, and along with other my friends, looked through this photo and we independently um, came to sort of the same conclusion. And the logic is this. It wasn't taken in 05. It was taken in the fall of then 1908. And the reasoning behind it is this. Gennaro Lombardi, the man on the right, was born in 1887. He came to America in November of, of the 1904. Pero was born in 1881 and arrived in New York in June of the 1903. The key fact is, or one of the key facts, is that sign, that vertical sign in the middle window actually says WED 25 November, which is obviously Wednesday, November 25th. And that doesn't show a year, but there's only three years in the, our reasonable range that would make any sense at all. And that's 1903, 1908, and 1914. And the final fact that seals the deal is, or the facts that seal the deal is, Janelle Lombardi was not in America in the 1903, there, so there's no way he could have actually owned a business. Um, and the final fact that seals the deal is that I found a building permit application for the summer of 1912 that completely changed that facade and that stairwell that that man is going to the basement in, completely different. So this is clearly before, on or before the summer of the 1912, which eliminates the 1914 date, which means the only year that makes any sort of sense, even in the totality of everything else that we know, and we know a considerable amount about the ownership of this place. The only time period that makes any sense is the fall of the 1908. Now, significantly for this, story is that Gennaro Lombardi was never at this time period in a city directory. So this gets into how the city directories were constructed and they take essentially a snapshot. So you could be in there during that year, but if when they canvassed that city directory, you were not at that spot as an owner, you were not gonna be in that year's city directory. So that's actually supportive of the fact he actually appeared in the fall because they do the directories in the spring and the May, June, uh, spring of that year. So if he was in the fall, he would have have to have left before they did the next year's one in the 1909. So what had happened, here's the big picture of what Lombardi actually did. Lombardi bought the pizzeria in the 1908 and had it for only a short time. Sold it to a relative through marriage whose name was Francisco Dorico, bought it back from Dorico in the 1918 and had it until he died in 1958. Now, who started it? That's the really the key thing that we want to know. And it was started almost as sure that I put probably in there. We're actually pretty confident that he did do the starting of it. It was actually started by, by a man named Filippo Maloney, who was a major figure, and it was started in 1898, way before General Lombardi was even in America. Uh, and it's interesting, if you go through directories, it never, of course, it never says, pizzeria, it calls it a bakery, it'll call it a deli, it'll call it a grocery, and it, it's not really sure what it does. I found uh, some very unique um, articles. He was actually defrauded by a flower salesman who was also a fellow Italian. And so we know he was making something in an oven, and we know when he takes over in the, su in the summer of 1898, almost the first thing he does is he applies for a building 
permit for a bake oven, which is not sufficient to say he was a pizzeria, but if you know this man's entire career, the only thing he ever did was pizza. Anyway, we're going to come to that. Um, anyway, so the thing that I'm obsessed about is the origins of things. And so the obvious thing to ask is who was first? And not just who was first, but who can we verify that was first? And we go back to our trusty city directories. And what happens? We looked in the Baker section of the Manhattan city directory from 1894. So this is the business one that would have been canvassed in the spring of 1894. And the way they canvass them is they're supposed to talk to the actual proprietor and get his name and record the name and the address. Sometimes they cheated though, which is a very horrible thing to do, right? We're fortunate that this canvasser cheated or maybe he didn't cheat. Well, no, he did cheat because what he did almost assuredly is he looked at the sign. Maybe it was on the window. Maybe it was an over, over an overhead sign. And he thought the proprietor's name was Forno e Pizzeria which is oven and pizzeria. Of course, there's no Italian name that even comes close to that to be in the baker section. So it's obvious just by looking at it, what he did or she did, but it's almost surely a he and almost surely a non-Italian who did it because they would have probably known what that actually meant. Uh, so we're just fortunate. The first indication that we get in America that there's actually a verifiable pizzeria at a specific spot in America is at 59 and a half Mulberry Street, which is right if you know the history of it. It was in the west side of the Mulberry Bend, which doesn't exist anymore. It's a park. It was destroyed in um, 1896. Um, so the question is, well, that's the name of the business then. Great. Fantastic. But who was actually the baker behind it? And then we get into the spelling issues. So everything has a little bit of a problem with it. But the, the name of the baker associated with it, and we think it was the baker alone who was establishment of the pizzeria is the name of the directory at the time was called Giovanni Abani spelled with an I, but then they spell it with an A. But we really think, or I really think his real name was Giovanni Albano with an N-O. Uh, and why? Well, he was uh, an immigrant from Brasigliano who went to Naples, opened up, if it's the same guy, which I think it is, opened up a pizzeria in Naples right before he came to America in 1891. We've actually had, there was a book uh, published about this and I saw it in the appendix and my eyes lit up when I saw Giovanni Albano because it was exactly the guy that I wanted to see there opening up a pizzeria in Naples before. So interesting enough, he's an immigrant from Brasigliano going to the city, the capital city of Naples, which of course is the center of the pizza in the world at the time. And then shortly thereafter, he comes to, to America and opens up his shop. Uh, even before this, he had one um, about a block or two away. We don't know what it was. It's, it would be reasonable to assume that it was probably a pizzeria too, but it doesn't have the verifiable name. So that was 1893. He comes to this spot in the summer of 1893. Again, we just know the name. We don't know the name of the business, but we get the name of the business uh, in 1894. And then afterwards it goes back to his actual name. So it's pretty clear that that was a pizzeria, how authentic it was, how did he do bread too? I don't know. But my contention is that if you hold yourself out with a business name as a pizzeria, I'm not going to judge you and say, well, no, you're really not. So this to me is the first verified 
pizzeria in the United States, 59 and a half, the Mulberry Street in Manhattan. Um, and we're still searching for some earlier ones, but this is where we are. Um, so it'd be great to have a picture of that, right? It would be uh, you know, a dream of mine to have a picture of 59 and a half, the Mulberry Street. And there is one, <laughs> but it comes with a catch. And that is, if you see the red arrow there, that is right above what would be the window for 59 and a half Mulberry Street. The awning there is actually 59 the Mulberry Street, but the window there, because it's on a diagonal, you can just see the tip of the window there. So our friend, uh, Julius the Wilcox, who took this photo probably in 1892, given the businesses that were on that block that I've been able to identify, we're really using this for context and fun. Uh, we really can't see any of the critical signage that would actually verify that it was a pizzeria. Now, of course, this actually was before Abano was there, but it was a bakery even before he was there. So then it goes into where their pizzeria even beforehand. Again, we just don't know. Uh, it's not unreasonable to think so, but we just don't know. It is interesting to note that the previous owners came from a village very close to where Albano was actually born. Uh, so you see these clusters that happen, which to me is very intriguing. It's not direct evidence, but it is very suggestive when you see, and of course, it's sort of common sense that would have existed at the time that you would have these immigrant social circles talking, you would have had societies of particular sections of Italy, and they would have talked, and they would have shared stories, they would have, you know, said, you know, you can go see this guy, he'll give you employment, you start working for a baker, and then you want to open up your own shop. This is the way things work, right? It was all a family style business uh, that you were going operating on trust. And a lot of these different sections of New York, if you came from a substantially different section of Italy, it would be fairly difficult to understand um, a different Italian if you didn't come from your particular province or region, especially. Um, so anyway, you just see this effect of clustering, particularly from where they came from, which uh, I hope to document it in further detail, but it's a little bit beyond the scope of this presentation. Anyway, that's the photograph. Uh, there's more photographs kind of like this, but nothing with this great of sight of the, of the signage. Anyway, significant enough too, the basement was almost assuredly a saloon. So that sign there called Abbott Lager Beer is probably the sign for the saloon in the basement. Uh, these directories are a little crazy because just because you have 59 F Mulberry, you don't know if it's the first floor or the basement floor or the cellar or the second floor. But if you're a bakery, it turns out it was probably on the first floor and the, and the cellar actually had the saloon there. Anyway, go on. So one of the funny things that uh, when I would talk to people about the research, they would go, oh, you know, it's, it shouldn't be that hard. Just Google it, right? Just Google it. Um, don't work that way, obviously. Uh, but then the next thing to say, well, you know, if you need to know the names of the businesses, just go to a, go go to a directory and find that. Well, there wasn't a pizzeria directory section. <laughs> we didn't have that until the earliest one. There was an Italian American one in the 1940 in the New York City, but that really wasn't that substantial. It really came on to have a dedicated separate pizzeria section in the telephone directories in the um, mid. 1950s when pizza became a national phenomenon. So we're out of luck for these early guys, right? So, but there's always a little catch. There's always some hope. And there was actually published, luckily enough, the Italian business directories for three years, 1907, 1909, and 1911 had a dedicated pizzeria section 
they had it for Manhattan and Brooklyn, but basically Maloney was the only guy in Brooklyn. They really had it mainly for Manhattan and the Bronx. So the guys you see here are the first pizzeria section in a directory. You know, there's multiple guys there. They all make sense because they're all coming from Campania. They're all coming basically from a bakery tradition. Some of them look to be like Albano coming from an actual pizzeria perspective in Italy. It's not totally clear. And again, you get these clusters of people coming from the same sort of towns, uh, which is the structure that really intrigues me. Uh, but anyway, so the, the, this from just this, you, you can sort of build on things to get out who was doing what, when and where. Uh, we would love to have it earlier. We would love to have it from the turn of the century. I, I suspect it would be far less of the people. And interesting enough, if you see this list here, what's not on the list? What's not on the list is 53 Spring Street, which goes to directories are not perfect. There's nothing perfect to say. It could be a restaurant. It could be uh, a pizzeria. So they were in the restaurant section. They weren't in the pizzeria section. So it's not definitive. Nothing's really definitive. But if you're in this directory section here, I think it's highly likely you were actual pizzeria at the time. We move on. So this gets into a little bit, don't obsess about all the words on this one. I'm just showing this as an example of the Maloney to the networks he had. He had a business, the network, and he had a social the network, like everyone does who's in those spheres. Maloney was unique, though, because he was the one man, and by the way, he was born in 1862, and he came from Piano de Sorrento, which is right outside of the city of Sorrento. Um, he came to America probably in 1892, although it's not definitive. If you go back far enough, he's shipped the manifest gets really primitive and it's really hard to tell who's who. Uh, but that looks to be when he came. What you see in red are the pizzerias were virtually certain he started. Um, three of those pizzerias are, well, became major pizzerias that basically changed the culture of Manhattan and Brooklyn in the sphere of pizza. That was Spring Street, that was Sullivan Street, and that was Van Brunt Street in Brooklyn. Uh, people in the city kind of know Spring Street and Sullivan Street because they later became John's on Laker Street, which is still in existence. So everything you see in the yellow is still in existence as of last year, which I think is still the case now. They're still all in existence. COVID still hasn't knocked any of them out, thank God. And uh, so this is just an example of one man and the effect of, because he was early and because he went to so many different locations. And if you have enough chances, some of the things you do are going to make a, have an effect. Now, he did in a bit business context. Unfortunately, he didn't have any children. And so there was no one left to record him. So he dies in an unmarked grave. He wasn't rich at all. But he leaves this sort of unspoken legacy of pizzerias that still survive to, to, to this day. So that's the business side of the network that he had. So if you work for him or that if he told you to work for a guy who was a friend of his, that he was sort of a, a guy that you could, uh, that could influence people get, get, get getting jobs in the pizzeria, the, the business, or he started them and someone else took them and then they moved on. Uh, that's the business side of it. There's also social, the side of it too, in that you see after he's starting these pizzerias, you start start seeing people from his hometown or a near hometown starting to get in the pizza business. Some of them were probably bad bakers, but other of them look completely different 
the backgrounds. So again, we don't have a diary of this guy. I don't know what he was doing, but it seems like he was exerting a social influence on the rest of his social sphere there. It might have not been directly. It might have been just either um, he could find you a job or it could be that he had some social standing in the community. And so he was looked on with some esteem, whereas in the other communities in the New York, a pizza operator wouldn't be a, that fantastic of a job. Maybe in this community with the people from these particular towns in Italy, it was looked upon as a high status thing. Uh, we just don't know. We can just see the effects of it happening. And it is striking to see the number of people coming from, and it's not a big town, that particular side of Italy. So anyway, it's a fascinating thing. He's an interesting life. Um, and I hope to document uh, the more of it, but he was not the only one. So there were other people, even though I think he's a unique guy, we can go to the Bruno family with three Bruno brothers who came and started, how many we got here? Uh, looks like eight pizzerias in New York City, somewhere between 1905, probably in 1940 or so. Uh, they had them in the Upper East Side as opposed to Maloney, who had his in Brooklyn and in the lower side of Manhattan uh, for the most part. These guys were pretty much strictly in the Upper East Side of Manhattan and in the Bronx. So again, you remember that photograph I showed you with the family history? This is the same photograph, but I didn't point out the guys in the circle. The guy on the left with the circle is Giovanni Bruno, and the younger, much younger of the man at the bottom is his son, Vincenzo or Jimmy. And again, we don't know for sure, but the family was married into the Piscopo family. The Piscopo family was part of Johnny's the Pizzeria, was just one of those that still exists now. And it just shows you, I don't know the Piscopo family if they didn't come from, I, 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 there's no information that they came from a pizza background. So they might've married into the family to get into the pizza business. And that's their initial introduction for it. Anyway, that filters down and that also affects the, the Mario's Pizzeria in the Bronx also, who bought one of the pizzerias from the Piscopo family. So you get this cascading effect of one family ha having an influence just through, through marriage and their social circles. And it changes a lot of different lives, essentially. Also, Jimmy at the bottom, he would help his dad. He would clean out a lot of the ovens. And then he went into the army in World War II as a cook. And then he met some people from Chicago. And what does he do? He comes to Chicago and starts allegedly in the loop, the first pizzeria in Chicago. It, in the loop in Chicago. So the loop is just the central section of Chicago for those who are not in Chicago. Uh, and supposedly Jimmy Bruno was the one who started the first one at the Yacht Club Lounge. Uh, I talked to the Bruno family and Jimmy had to leave Chicago on short notice because organized crime figures were gunning for his business and the money. It was not a good situation. That's the family story. Uh, but then where does he end up? He goes eventually to Little Rock, Arkansas and opens up the first pizzeria in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we get from Manhattan to Chicago to Little Rock, Arkansas, and you can see sort of the cascading effects of just one family originally coming to, to America in about 1903 to 1907, and the massive effect just three the brothers would have upon American pizza history. Um, so we haven't shown many photos of pizza from that time period. This is one of the rare ones. And this is a very unique photograph. 
you know, like the other photograph of uh, the Mulberry Street, you get these guys who are street photographers who have the time and have the energy to go around and take very non-financially rewarding photographs. And this guy took about 40,000 of them for the New York Public Library. His collection in the negative forms was auctioned off within the last four years. And that collection is filtered out and they've been selling it in pieces. I found this one under not pizza, but Italian pies. And that's what he labeled it as. So this guy was not Italian. He liked to go to the Italian feast day. And so this is the day in July, 1928, that was the Mount Carmel feast day. And so we're talking um, Italian Harlem now, Upper East Side, Manhattan. And he labeled the negative, thank God, with Italian pies. And he put, he was very near the corner of uh, 112th Street and First Avenue, which if you go to a city directory and you map out all your bakeries on a spreadsheet, like some of us do, there was only one bakery that was even a block close to that. And it's right there almost. And that's the D Pompeii bakery or it's on it's in the bakery section but we don't know because were they doing bread or they're doing what, what was it a dedicated pizzeria it's back to the old the problem again but we see this photograph taken of these kids right in front of where the bakery was i don't think it's a big leap to say it was probably um the pies came from that bakery we have other indications that they did actually produce the pizza at that spot um, then the question is, you want to get really ambitious. Who's the guy in the middle? Now he's got his hands in his pockets and he's probably got his hands on the money. So that means he's probably a part of the family. Is there a person of that age in that family? And sure enough, there is. And, uh, if you do the gene genealogy on the family, they had nine kids at least. And I think he was the second youngest and his name was Joseph. And he was born in 1916, which means he would be 12 in the picture approximately. Uh, he, fortunately he passed away. So I'm going to have to do a little bit more of the research on the extended family to see if we can verify that this was actually Joseph D. Pompey, but it's that sort of deductive work that I love to do and that it's fun. Um, and this interesting enough, this does have a Chicago angle because what started to happen in the late thirties and early forties is that pizza became popular in New York City, and you started for whatever reason, and maybe it's just because they wanted to see a new the market. You started to see bakers with a pizza background leave New York City and go to other cities in the Midwest and the West Coast. So there's um, one prominent one that that occurred in Los Angeles. Anyway, I think basically his older brother Frank, who was born in the 1900 came to Chicago at about 1939, 1940, and started either working in initially, but opened up his own pizzerias in Chicago during the war. So this was Frank the de Pompey. Uh, and I'll get back to him in a second. But anyway, so we can look a little bit at the pizzas too, just as long as we had them. And this to me, um, you know, what you can deduce from the, from the look and the shape of the pizza, first of all, they tend to be on the small side, which means to me, they're not sit-down pizzas. They're not stuff that you would actually have with a group of people. They're what I would call a street the pizza. Maybe you would fold it up once or twice, but basically you could eat that with confidence that the toppings are not going to get all over your shirt. They don't look that juicy. They look fairly dry and they don't look that 
heavily cheesed. There may be a dry cheese on there. There may be a garlic. You can see some specks on there, but we're not really sure. Uh, but anyway, that's an indication of what things would have been like on the street of Manhattan. Probably things didn't change that month since the turn of the century. So this is a very unique and special photograph because it shows a side that we're really not seeing too often in terms of the type of uh, the pizza. Uh, let's go on though. So, so we said about Chicago. So that's sort of the national side of the story as to who came first. If we want to pull out the zoom, the lens a little bit from what was happening on a national story. I've talked endlessly about New York City, but uh, the first pizzerias that we can see different states, the earliest one from California was actually recently discovered. It was 1908, uh, which hasn't really made the press too much, but basically that's true. Um, Chicago, we're basically going to say, well, we're going to get, get to that, so I'll just skip that. Uh, New Jersey, we're going to say 1915 probably is the first one. Uh, Massachusetts, an interesting one. It was probably 1896, 95-ish. Uh, we don't have great evidence on that, but we're pretty sure that there was something there. But again, all these states had pizzerias to some extent before the war uh, that were industrial states. Uh, some states like, say, Montana or South Dakota, obviously would be a post-World War II thing. But if you were industrial and if you had a significant amount of talents in your population, it would have been there probably before or during the war. Um, anyway, so we can go on from there and we're going to go on from now to Chicago. So when we talk about uh, iconic the pizzas uh, as a national story, we hear names like Lombardi and these might not mean anything, but Frank Pepe, these are iconic names that the family businesses survived. Uh, Chicago was not as fortunate. And uh, kind of an old story in Chicago, we had eminent domain because of the university on the near the west side. That affected an enormous amount of the businesses in Chicago uh, because to open up the University of Illinois at Chicago, they needed to knock down a lot of uh, Italian businesses and homes. And that's where our first pizzeria was made to disappear. So this is Granado's Pizzeria. It's at 907 the West Taylor Street, which is about a block the west of Halstead on the south side of the street. This is right now a, I think it's the School of Engineering and Sciences um, that takes over essentially the two blocks that this was near. Um, this photo was taken in 1961, right when they were getting the decisions from the court and the press was doing the follow-up stories and saying, what's it going to mean? Are you going to stay in business? And at, at that time, uh, Tom Granada would have been 60 years old. So he was getting up there and nearing the retirement age. Uh, he was still optimistic at this time that he was going to reopen. They were going to fight the court and all that. Uh, it never happened. It never happened. There, there, there was no one from the family who took on the business to go to, to a different spot and to preserve the legacy of the business. Uh, but anyway, we, we have good information as to when it started because, and this doesn't always happen, unfortunately, sometimes the reporter interprets what the person says. And I guess that's, I don't know if it's a blot, if it's called the, the blind the quote, but this Joseph Haas actually gives us the money quote, the direct quote from Tom Granada, who's there at the time he opened up the store. And the, and the quote is perfect. Ours was the first and only pizzeria in the city. 
opening July 9th of 1924. My wife, Jenny, and me, we opened right here at the same address selling pizzas in the little storefront shop. Absolutely perfect and golden there. Everything that we know about the place, I'm usually pretty skeptical, but we have press articles that allude to it in the early 30s. The first directory in a telephone directory calling it a pizzeria happened in uh, 1936, uh, which doesn't disturb me because the proprietor's name just was there. So it doesn't tell you anything about the name of the business. Um, it was described as a bakery in 1924, and then a few years later, it's a restaurant, and some of the directories, it differs, so that's actually uh, constructed for it being a pizzeria. So everything I know, the family story, everything about it uh, t tells me it was uh, Chicago's first pizzeria in 1924. Uh, stories I've heard that it started out as a pizzeria, but then the, uh, the customers wanted more they wanted something else besides just um, the pizza um, it's interesting at this point to contrast it with new york and see how things were different uh, at this time it looks like tom granada was basically alone in the pizza business in chicago uh, there were bakeries absolutely they would have sold their sheet the pizzas there would have been peddlers going up and down the streets uh, there, there's some interesting stories that these the, the, these um, often alluded to, uh, sort of uh, uh, well, um, the peddlers essentially got their pizzas, understandably, from the bakeries and from Tom Garnado. So we actually have testimony from his family that that's where they were going to get the slices of pizzas to peddle up and down Taylor Street. I'm trying to identify who the peddlers were, but you can imagine how hard that is to do um anyway uh that's what the building they look like and we're going to see what the with the so again he comes from the campania the region and the the it's often in the press that well, when did they actually close it i've actually gotten pretty good, good information on this that it was probably during the spring or summer of 1963 that the building was actually de destroyed um anyway let's see what the pizza they look like so that's the cover that I used for the presentation. It's still the same one, but that's him in front of the oven. So I was able to date the picture on the left. If you look really closely at the newspapers that are on the table there, uh, there's a unique set of ads there that was only in the Tribune and National the Papers for basically a couple of days in 1938. So unless he kept the papers for a long time, we're looking at a photograph of Tom in 1938 in front and putting in a pizza in his wood oven, which to some people looking at that oven and the door of the oven, they might consider it a coal oven, but we have pretty very strong indications that it was in fact a wood fired oven at that time that he would cook the pizza in. And significantly what they would do, at least before they had a gas oven in the late fifties, they would cook their meals in the pizza oven, which means you would be cooking chicken, veal, all sorts of things with different thicknesses. So this is going to affect the way your pizza is cooked. So you would, you know, the thicker an object is, the more time you want in the oven. And to get more time, you have to lower the temperature, which is not the thing you absolutely want to do to cook the perfect the pizza. So Tom had to really know his hot spots well in that oven. And there probably would have been compromises. And if you're a baker and you see some of these photos of the pizzas, uh, you're going to critique the way they look a little bit in terms of the topping, uh, the burning of it, um, and the like. But it doesn't matter from um, a historical 
context, all I particularly care about are the dates on him and the fact that uh, what he's saying is truthful at this point. Um, so I, I don't know if I talked about the original one, basically that's J- 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 Jerry Colonna. He came through Chicago with that other man in 1950, and that's why I'm dating it as the 1950. Granado's Pizzeria and his daughter was actually a consultant for an Italian cookbook that was put out in 1954. and actually has her name on it, and I talked to her. She's still alive. And I said, did you cook it in the oven? And sure enough, so that's the only color photograph of a pizza from Granado's that I'm aware of. The rest of the photographs I actually got from the family. So please respect the rights of the the photographs and don't take the photographs off this presentation if you can. Thanks. Um, So we're going to go on. Uh, I should say, so he was using fresh mozzarella and he canned his own sauce. He had right from the tomatoes. Uh, We're not really sure about the flour he uses, but again, it was a wood fire oven and he cut it into wedges. So this is not tavern, the pizzas. This is very similar to what would have been going on, the type of uh, the pizza from New York City's around the same time period. Uh, but that wasn't the only Chicago pizza in the 1930s. Uh, so this has never been disclosed before. So you guys are getting a total exclusive here. Um, this pizzeria only existed during the 1934 World's Fair in Chicago. Now, the World's Fair actually began in 33, but to pay off the bonds, they extended it a year and they made these villages with English villages and Belgian villages, and there was Italian villages on 24th Street. In one obscure journal, magazine, whatever it was from People's Gas, because he used, I spelled that wrong, because he used a gas oven, they featured the pizzeria in it, which is the only documentation that this man was ever in the pizzeria. So what they said was kind of hilarious. Um, they said, come with us to P- Pizzeria La Boheme in the Italian village on 24th Street and have some of Chef Gaetano Stili's famous pizzas. We are told that this place is becoming one of the most popular haunts on the fairgrounds. And then it goes to a different section. He says, he was brought over from Naples to the Pizzeria di la Boheme restaurant at the foot of the Leaning Tower of Bologna in the Italian village. Because of his fame as a maker of pizzas, a specially constructed brick oven, gas fired, of course, is used in the Italian village. Well, what's hilarious, and then they give the actual recipe, which is something that's almost unheard of. It's the first the recipe I think I've ever seen in a published work that's really of any significance because, and this is why it's significant, this man didn't come off of the Naples. That was a total lie. He was actually from Brooklyn. He was originally from the province of the Naples, but he emigrated in 1908. What he did have is he did have, before he came to Chicago, a pizzeria in Brooklyn in 1932. And then he came to Chicago in 34 and was doing Chicago. Um, it's interesting to me that we would have to go to Brooklyn to get a pizza maker at that point. If I missed something and there were multiple pizzeria guys in Chicago, why do they find the need to go to Brooklyn to get a pizza maker? That's, I think that's a little bit of a tell. Uh, It's always a little bit of a concern, which you don't know what you don't know. So I I don't know the things I can't find. I only go where the the light is and we only see things that we have the documentation for. And so we often wonder, what are we missing? This is sort of one of those tests that says, well, if you need to go to Brooklyn to get your pizza maker, that's not the best of sign. Now, 
Granado had another restaurant that was not involved with the fair, but near the fair. The ex- he had to hustle during the depression, so he had multiple of the businesses. So, uh, for any of you, the bakers out there, you're seeing the two the cups of flour and one cup of water. Which, if you do the weights and you do the weights relatively right, that's about 100% hydration. That's what my the figures come out to be, with a little bit of fat in there too. Uh, that will raise some eyebrows. That was that's sort of an interesting thing to see. Uh, and in terms of toppings, we we really haven't terms of anything we haven't talked about a topping uh anchovies were of course very popular at that time uh granada usually would have mushrooms or sausage or anchovies or just a a straight cheese um there was never even hint of any pepperoni certainly or anything more exotic than that um but anyway gaetano stedili and then he goes back to new york after the fair the one thing about doing this history it's hard enough right it's very hard because the people are mostly all dead and the documentation is extremely poor and then you want to add on at a different layer and that is organized crime and so the backstory to this whole thing is that the people who were the movers and shakers behind the italian village were major figures in chicago organized crime (laughs) and that was speculated on with the immigration hearing for um paul ricca that happened in the 50s. They went back and they started interviewing the carpenters who worked on the Italian fair and saying, how did you handle the money this way? And was he involved in this and all that? Because they, I think they were trying to get him on an, on an IRS charge and trying to find out exactly where the money went. And uh, during the research for this particular side of it, I wanted to look and see if I could find a picture of the La Boheme, right? We'd love to get a picture of that. Well, I didn't get a picture of that, but I got this beautiful unbelievable, historically important, I think, um, photograph of Paul Ricca right above the Italian village that I'm going to put on my blog. Um, It's one of those things I showed to some of the guys who are really involved in the photography of organized crime figures, which is a whole different sub-genre, and they were just like, oh my God, I can't believe that still exists. Anyway, so uh, organized crime, 1934, What's good? We're going to go next. We're going to go to 1935. And here's another pizzeria opening up on 901 South Halster Street, Mio's Pizzeria Napolitana, which people who really know the Mio name in Chicago, that was not uh, unfamiliar to organized crime restaurants. Um, if you go back to um, some that opened up in the 50s and the 60s, you'll see that name um, occur. So what was going on here, James Meal was in was a musician. And uh, 91 South Halstead is a very uh, historically important address because that was the center, that was the command post, that was the cafe that major figures in organized crime used in the 1930s. So I think on Paul Ricca's naturalization, which he lied on, he puts that as his address. Uh, there's some interesting, to me, correlation. Ricca is behind the Italian village. There's a p- pizzeria there that leaves. Then on his headquarters, he opens up, or at his headquarters, the person who fronts it opens up a pizzeria. That's one of those facts that are 
an interesting coincidence. Um, I don't know if there's too much to tell. It wasn't there that long at all. It was pretty much gone by the early, the 1936. It wasn't that far away from Garnados at all. So uh, there's no real historical memory of that. I've never found any um, uh, articles about this or haven't dared to contact the family yet. But the only thing I found was this one ad from a musician's magazine that was fairly obscure. Uh, and only in late 1935. Uh, and there we are. So we're going to go on from there. Oh, the last slide. So we finally come to the point of when Chicago is coming into its own in pizza. And I'm going to date that probably around circa 1940. And that is when you start to get the pizzerias not just existing, but staying in business. And why are they staying in business? Not 100% sure, but I think it's this beautiful co combination between alcohol and pizza. So the traditional model is you go into the beer, wine, alcohol, the business is a tavern, and you have a side product. And maybe the side product is to stimulate demand for the alcohol, or maybe the side demand is you need a side demand for regulatory, the purposes for extended hours that you had to serve food of some type, not really sure. But you start to see these early, the earliest ones in terms of the 40s, at least, that you start to see combine, not all of them, but a lot of them, combine alcohol with pizza. And I have on the left there one sort of archetypical example of Spargas, which was on diversity that was there for a long time. And uh, just the, the feeling that was probably in the mid, the 1950s that, that the menu came out. But just the feeling of the pizza, the, the People who know that that's a Folds oven that was a rotating gas oven. And uh, you see the names here. I don't know if this is going to mean anything. But one thing that struck me is that in February of 1941, what does Tom Granato do? He sees probably his competition. So he trademarks the Pizzeria Napolitana, not unwise. And then you see a whole bunch of them on the near the west side, uh, and some other ones. Um, the two of the, the, the village was along for a long time. Paternal, the pizzeria was gone for a long time. But other ones like Roosevelt was there for a year at most. Uh, Sarno's was there for a while. Grande was there and then moved. Um, other ones, they died out. Uh, Shavoni was there for a long time. Uh, but you remember our friend who had the pizzas or the family that had the pizzas up on uh, the Harlem, the street pizzas. The pizza pie on 1031 West the Wilson in 1944, that was opened by Frank de Pompey, the brother of the guy who I, the older the brother of the guy who I suspect is the guy in the um, in the photograph there. And what that's interesting that that doesn't really strike you as an Italian section of town, which denotes that maybe pizza is starting to expand into non-Italian the neighborhoods, like it was already doing in the New York City. So we're basically behind. New York by at least five years. So New York started the other crossover in about 1935 with Broadway and uh, Midtown Manhattan where two of them opened up there and they would get a ton of artists and journalists would go there, not particularly Italian, but they would get the publicity of being in the, in the really um, busy section of Manhattan. Anyway, Chicago started to come on during the war. So we, in the old, the histories that are in the books, it was 
the story was that soldiers came back from Italy with a taste of pizza, and that's why pizza started to become popular in the United States. I've heard some stories that back that up a little bit, but it's unbelievably small relative to what was really going on. And just as a point of an example, New York City probably had at least 400 pizzerias cumulatively from 1890 to 1941, right? Chicago probably had a handful at that point, Uh, 400. Uh, I don't think they would have to wait for the soldiers to come back at that stage. I think that's already established the business where you're marrying up with after prohibition was lifted, which was the big significant effect that was probably holding back the development of the pizza business. You, things are really starting to come together. And the war just was a little bit of a catalyst too. And there were some examples of people having pizza in Naples. I've got some evidence for that, but not nearly the sort of the simple story that it sounds that they would just go there and they would take a leave in uh, the Naples and have uh, the pizzas though. That would be a thing that would just immediately switch them. Now, what would have probably happened is the, it, you would have had a phenomenon of mixing. So you would have people from the East Coast together, people from the Midwest, and maybe people from maybe Italians who were from Brooklyn were yearning for pizza that they couldn't get in the army, and they would talk about it. And then other people would know what they were talking about, and they would think tomato pie. And uh, they would say, sure. And then if they would go on leaving the United States, perhaps that's how they were introduced to pizza. So again, abstracts of it, you, you can't say are true. There are some intriguing things about towns near camps to prepare the soldiers for combat in America that had pizzerias develop right outside of them that were not typical sort of Italian towns at all. So that does support some of that. Uh, One thing I would like to add, um, notice the word that that man used in the 1944, the pizza pie. Pie was not really used in Chicago too often. That's more an East Coast word and sort of indicative of where that man came from, that he would use pizza pie. Now, it was used on the South Side a little bit, but very rarely. We certainly didn't have any words of tomato pie at all in Chicago. It was mainly pizza. Now, one sort of caveat at the very uh, the bottom that I'm going to talk about is that you did get restaurants that family stories were that they would sell, sorry, strike the word sell, that they would place pizza bread on the table and give it away essentially for free and combining that with the alcohol that way. So it's sort of like a loss later at that point. Uh, That's an interesting thing to to document. I'm not sure as a business how much that develops in terms of, because they're not selling it, then you're not really going into the pizzeria business, but you're you're using the product. So it it is an interesting thing to document. And there is definitely um, when the alcohol sales were the only thing to could drive them and they would have to give away the pizza. So we do see that in a few of the cases. And the Kedzie Beer Garden was done by the family who was the backers of Celeste the Pizza and eventually sold the recipe for Celeste the Pizza. And they did have the Kedzie the Beer Garden in the mid-30s. Okay, so that's that. And then the last kicker, I'm going to get into the origins of the Tavern Cut, which is just some speculation that I've been going through. And I sort of noticed empirically what was going on and what might have happened. So this is, there's no direct evidence for that as opposed to just the empirical things I do see. And what I do see is this, what I'm going to call, introduce the term here, a proto-tavern cut. And the proto-tavern cut is that 
the tavern cut traditionally has a grid of vertical lines and horizontal cuts. So vertical cut, horizontal cut, and it comes into the pieces, small of the pieces. That's the tavern cut or the party cut. What the proto-tavern cut is, is that you have one vertical cut and then a series of horizontal cuts in parallel. And so that to me is interesting, but what's even more interesting is those pizzerias that do that cut are tend to be have some tie, if not directly, indirectly, but tend to have directly, they have an old history. So they were coming from the 40s. So for example, in the loop, you if you go to Italian the village in the loop of Chicago, you're gonna see a proto you're gonna see a proto tavern cut there. Why they do it, they can't tell you because that's been gone for a long time. Maybe it was a convention back then. I suspect what could have happened is the following. So you you do empirically see this phenomena. The older the tavern is, the more likely they're going to have this proto-tavern cut. And a very small step from the the proto-tavern cut is to not just use one vertical, but use a series of verticals to cut it up into finer pieces, which if you're... In a tavern, it's obviously conducive to have smaller the pieces so you can share it easier and all sorts of things like that. So why put this particular one vertical cut in a pizza? I suspect what might have been happening at the earliest beginnings or the tradition is that it wasn't a symmetrical crust. And you don't get a symmetrical crust by not hand tossing it in a symmetrical way. And sometimes that, that can happen through the following ways. You can use a roller pin in one direction, or if you've ever gone to a pizzeria that uses a mechanical roller pill called a sheeter, and they put the dough right through the sheeter, it comes out oblong or oval in one direction, not symmetrical and perfectly for the use of, it, of this one vertical cut and then a series of horizontal cuts. You do actually see evidence for this. Uh, there's one, the first, Pizzeria in Dallas. I talked to them just the, the other day, and they said, "This is the shape that was happening at the time you were getting these oval shapes." Uh, I think they said that they were using a sheeter for that. And the thing about the sheeters, if you don't go through it bi-directionally, so if you don't rotate it and do it the other direction, you're going to get an oval. This is what happened. Again, empirically, this is what what I'm seeing. Whether this exactly happened that way, I'm not sure. But I think that's a big clue as to the older the tavern or the pizzeria is, if they have this proto-tavern cut, I think that's telling you something of how the eventual party cut actually happened. So that's my two cents on that. And um, we're going to call that a wrap then. And I'm open for any questions that you can throw at me. I'm fair game. Oh, one thing to mention. Uh, May 13th of, of the, the, this year, it's going to be part two. So I started with the deep dish and I'm going to finish with the deep dish, uh, the history. So if you're interested in history and uh, intrigue, just come to that one. If you love this one, e- e- even a little bit, you got to c- come to see this one because it's going to be a good one. And uh, I can't wait to tell a story. It's a Again, you're going to see the same things happening that uh, the perception versus the reality is um, huge at, at at some points. Anyway, Kathy, if you're there, I'm all um, at your the mercy. 
I have to remember to unmute myself. You know, Steve Delinsky, I see you have some questions and, and actually I'm interested in the proto as well. So why don't you just unmute and ask your question if that's okay. Sorry, can you hear me? Yep. I can hear you, Steve. Okay, so I'm in a room with other people. I'm so fascinated by this proto tavern, oh Peter. Um, yeah. Home Run Inn, you know, was a tavern in the 20s, 30s, then they started doing pizza late 40s. Vito and Nick's obviously around that same time was doing pizza. Were they, as far as you know, doing the proto tavern? And uh, all those places you mentioned on that 1940-41 list, were those doing proto tavern as well? No. Uh, not that I know of. Uh, the only one that I know of, uh, and I didn't even have it at that list because it's a little bit of a complicated, the history, um, is the Italian village that started but before the war and then stopped it and then restarted again shortly thereafter the war. Um, what I'm really driving at is that if you know the Quad City stuff, that's got a proto-tavern cod. If you know John's from Hammond, Indiana, I guess they've moved, that has a proto-Italian cod. There's one in Michigan City that has one. De Lorenzo's in Trenton, or used to be in Trenton, they have a proto Italian or a proto tavern cut. There's this one, um, Carlisi's in Dallas that has a proto one. I haven't really started to look that hard for it, but what I do see is pizzerias from the late 40s, early 50s uh, tend to have this particular type of cut far more than other ones do. It's not a given. They could have easily changed it. And, and don't forget, I mean, the thing that's so complicated in a lot of these things that just because they're in a phone directory, like Vito and Nick's as a tavern, the key question would be when did they actually bring pizza on board as a product? And uh, very few came before the war. Um, you would have to ask, actually have to have some verification for it. So my, the knowledge of Home Run Inn and they you know next is they're strictly after World War II in terms of the pizza stuff. Um, so I hope okay, that answers somewhat of your question. Yeah, it's, it's, and, one, and one follow-up and then I'll stop bugging everybody about this. Oh, that's fine. So my, so my understanding always was that that tavern style you know, based on something easy to put on a cocktail napkin to pass around, give you something salty to eat. Um, the, 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 proto the proto tavern is really a rectangular slice, not able to fit on a little napkin. But do you, where do you feel like that, that perfect square came in and became kind of the, that Chicago style thin? Well, I mean, certainly the advantage of the proto is that you don't have an inside piece, which Typically, this is not for everyone, but I don't know too many people who want the inside piece. I'm sure there are people who are different, but from our family, the number one spots were to get the corner of the pieces, which were the little the triangles for the tavern cut. And uh, the benefit of the proto is that you don't have an inside piece, which means the pieces are a little bit longer. Uh, interesting thing, the Carlises in Dallas calls that the ribbon, the ribbon cut, as in ribbons um i you know why did they cut it more uh maybe they got more sophisticated in the way they stretched their dough um colin my friend at the new haven has an interesting observation with sally's the way their paces or the the way their crust or oblong is because when it comes off the peel they sort of throw it down they don't just sort of simply the nicely 
have it down nicely down. They sort of just throw it off the peel. And that is the final stretch. And that gets that final sort of oblong, I guess, in the direction of the throw. Um, yeah, there's even one that was just conversing with someone on Facebook in Cicero that was there in the 50s that said they put it through a sheeter, it came out oval, and they used the protocot. And it was uh, there in the 50s and the 60s. So, you know, I, I just, you know, knowing everything I know, these things to happen that frequently and see the same pattern, not with everyone, certainly, and it's easy but about to change. Uh, but to see it that frequently in places like John's and the Quad Cities and these other spots from the 40s, there's something up there. I, I, I think that was probably occurred first. And yeah, you want more of the paces to share so the pizza would go longer, I, I would assume, right? Um, I, I don't know. In the same protocut, um, John Porter said, uh, did the protocut phase out as pizzas got larger? He sees it working for a 10, 12 inch tavern, but probably not larger. Um, well, if anyone remembers Scoozies, I, I don't think they're still there anymore. They're probably long gone, but they might have used a protocut too, because they were extreme ovals, very long. Um, uh, Carlisi's look pretty big, actually. They weren't that small. Um, I don't know if it's a question of size. I think it's really the how you stretch the dough and if you're rotating the dough to do it a second stretch. So if you're gonna use a sheeter or a pin, you've got to stretch it in both directions. If you bias into one direction, you're gonna get an oblong shape. Um, but how it changed, I don't know, that may be lost to history. I know there's some, there's some early um, fathers and sons menus that I remember that actually show the cut. And I think it was a party cut. Um, but yeah, so this is tough. I mean, it, it's, uh, I don't know if it's going to be a tractable problem. I just, I think that um, observation to make about these unique um, one cut vertical cut, the pizzas, it, it, it is a big clue. Now why it changed from that, I don't know. Um, Scott's Pizza Tours inquired why dough sheeters in Chicago, but not cities like New York, New Haven, and Trenton. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott probably knows the answer to that. But um, I suspect, I mean, so I'm not going to rip on Chicago, but so the bigger theme here that I haven't really talked about is that Chicago did not come from a Baker Campagna background as nearly as much as the East Coast did. So the people who were involved in the East Coast pizza, I didn't really talk about it, but I think I I, I had on the graphic a Filippo number, and that would be the, the, the amount of links away from a Filippo uh, pizzeria. So they actually have some still in existence that have uh, a positive Filippo number. I don't know anyone in Chicago that even come close to that. What I'm saying is that I don't want to get caught up in authenticity, but the people who came to the East Coast established, particularly in New York City, what looks like a pizza culture far earlier before it became Americanized. When you started to get after prohibition and that word that you can make a profit in pizza came to Chicago through undoubtedly these social networks of families who in the East Coast but still had family here in Chicago. Certainly it wasn't in any, any papers. That came through and 
I think they saw profit in their eyes. And, you know, let's face it, it's an easier way to handle dough uh, by using a rolling pin or a sheeter than to hand stretch. Also, it goes to the amount of hydration in your dough too and um, good things like that. So I think, you know, it's hard to take away one thing. Chicago was a sausage town. It always was a sausage town. And you need a longer the cook time for your sausage, the pizzas too, which means, you know, goes to how long you can keep the pizza in the oven for and uh, the type of dryness you want in the dough. So we're famous for our cracker style, thin crust tavern, the pizzas, as opposed to New York was a totally different style. Um, I think there are a lot of factors involved in that. Basically what I'm saying is that sh- the East Coast, in particular the big ones, still had the tradition of the Campania bakers still alive in their pizzerias into the 40s, which Chicago did not have that background. We basically had Tom Granato, and that was pretty much it. Uh, if you see his the pizzas, it comes close to that style of New York. Um, it's a little hard to infer with just a couple of of examples of Tom's the pizzas, but from everything we know about the pizzas, they would have been, if they would have sold in Brooklyn or Manhattan, they would have been pretty indistinguishable at that time. Um, you know, we came from a different, so we got things after them because uh, things became popular in Chicago when alcohol became allowable and when people started saying they, they could make a lot of or at least some money with uh, pizza as a side product. Uh, I don't think they were typically getting into the pizza business directly, except for a few examples. Uh, They were mainly getting into the alcohol, the business, and uh, using that as a side product. Whereas in New York, it would have been substantially different. Um, I'm sure if I thought about it enough, which... I'm probably forgetting some of the things I said. Uh, I can probably come up with some more examples of that. But uh, So we have another question for you. Uh, Taste of New Haven inquired, did Chicago's original pizzerias like Granado's sell by the slice or by the pie or both? It was solely by the pie with one exception. And that was one exception is that they were using the pizza slices, already sliced to sell to peddlers who would then do that on the street. So the only thing I'm aware of with any slice is through a peddler in Chicago. And in Chicago, they would sell that with the peddlers through Granados and the bakeries. We're both contributing towards the peddlers and their sales. And uh, there were many peddlers. It wasn't just one guy in all the whites with a tub on the top of his head. I've got trays with tablecloths on top of that. I've got tubs. They could have been a stufa, which is another um, more, more, Italian things. I think it goes back before World War One, and I think they were probably there until the 40s. Uh, they weren't exactly extremely visible. I've had people live there and saying they were not there at all and just swear up and down they were not there in the 40s. I would have remembered them. But I've got the Granado family who was actually working in the pizzeria that said how the peddlers actually got it from Tom Granado. And um, yeah. So it would probably have been about three or four cents a slice. And, uh, you know, there you go. And only in the summertime. So they would not have been there, obviously, in the wintertime. Um, what else did they tell me about that? I would, 
I really would love to find out a name or two about him, but unfortunately, the way that they described him, it doesn't seem like they had a lot of family. Uh, I've got a few suspect on my list, but uh, nothing definite yet. And uh, I, I was told the one guy who remembered the guy's name, Vince, that he was essentially a drunk. So he was doing it essentially to get uh, the money for booze. But uh, that's, who knows if that's true. But so we uh, there were many of them. Okay, so Armand DeRico, I hope I got the name correct. You got um, it. Great, nice presentation. What's more popular in Chicago, deep dish or Neapolitan pizza? And also, where and when will the next pizza museum be established? Well, the great Who question. If Ken, if Kendall's on the on the call, um, he could speak to that in the chat. But uh, I don't know is is the answer. It's online. And uh, as Armand and I talked, and I've talked to my other the friends on this talk, that uh, uh, the actual original location at 53 Spring that was opened in the early 2000s, it was a bar, the restaurant, because of COVID, they have closed. I don't know if anyone has taken that over. I suspect not. That would be the perfect spot if you had a billion dollars just to go in there and just make the perfect uh, pizza museum in that. But uh, that's not probably going to happen, I suspect. Um, I don't know the answer to that. As to which is more popular, I'm probably the last person to ask about contemporary pizzas. It changes so frequently. Someone like Steve Dolinsky would know far more, who's actually done a book on that, than I would on this. I, you know, The typical thing to say is tavern style, that thin cracker crust is the Chicago pizza and that deep dish or God forbid, even stuffed is for the tourist. Uh, it's not that simple, but there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, so if you were to say, what's the most popular one, you would say tavern crust, but things are changing in Chicago and we're getting a lot more of the neo Neapolitan you know, stuff. So who knows? It's a lot. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, okay. By the way, Steve Delinsky agrees with you oh, uh, on your assessment, apparently. Uh, okay. Terry, ter oh, sorry. No, okay. Uh, Terry, Terry Lawinger, uh, I hope I didn't mess up her name. She inquired, through the 1940s, were toppings still simple tomatoes, garlic, maybe anchovies? Yeah, so if you um, were to say, I mean, I'm particularly thinking about pre-World War II, the only things you typically see, obviously, cheese and sauce, uh, anchovies, almost everything, every pizzeria at that time had those. <sighs> Often, even in non-Chicago spots, they'd have sausage, too. That was popular at the time. Uh, somewhat green pepper and mushrooms in particular. So if I had to say the top three uh, for pre-World War II would be sausage, mushrooms, and anchovies. And New Haven would do things differently. They could have chicken or tuna or God knows what they did there. But what uh, but, but, I mean, the key thing for me is that you didn't have any, uh, well, how, how do I say? You, you don't have any documented absolute 100% example of pepperoni before, say, 1947, which is the first time I've seen pepperoni in a pizzeria ad as a topping. Uh, why that happened and why it took so late and why it's popular on the East Coast as opposed to Chicago, which, you know, that goes to our culture. I mean, I think, I think, I think the intriguing thing about that is that the, um, 
America changed pizza and that we, uh, it looks like for me that we made pizza a meal. So uh, that's the one thing in the history that they did say it was a snack and now it's a meal. Well, there was a substantial amount of truth to that. So we did change the toppings to a far more protein rich topping in the, just the amount of cheeses to use uh, that would have been pretty much unheard of before 1920 to use tons and tons of cheese. I'm not even talking about anything pan-wise at all. I'm talking about just a normal thin crust pizza here in Chicago is more a cheese pie than, than a tomato pie. And they, you know, it's interesting when you go to the old time pizzerias in the East Coast, it's still sort of a tomato pie with the emphasis on the tomatoes. Whereas that if you come to Chicago, even if it's a thin crust, the emphasis is on the cheese. And, um, you know, to each his own, it's just, it's, it's a more richer protein, rich meal. If you get cheese, than sauce. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So Monica Ang uh, commented that when you, the people, w, when we looked at takeout data for WBEZ, we saw more orders for thin crust, which, you know, it's not a surprise. Yeah. Now, um, Somebody inquired uh, about pineapple as a topping God. for pizza. Right. <laughs> what about it? I don't know. They said, what about pineapple? Well, I actually do have a blog post that's going to be coming up when I get my major stuff out that uh, the first documented pineapple pizza, uh, I think it came from Chicago that, that I can document it from. And that was in like 1952, 1951. So the, the traditional thing is the the Hawaiian pie with the pineapple and the ham started with the Greek pizzeria owner in Canada. Uh, forget what province it was, but that's it. But that started in 1962, I think he claimed. But there's actually pretty good evidence that it that it happened way sooner. And for example, Tom Grenau would get all crazy things like Americans coming into his uh, pizzeria and wanting hot dogs on the pizza, and he would be repulsed about. One thing I didn't say, and this is uh, important with Granado and Chicago, is Italians came to Granado's a little bit to get the pizza, a little bit to get the meals. Where they really started to come to Granado's is when they expanded into banquets and they would go to Granado's for their baptisms and weddings. That's when they would have go to a big feast at Granado's. From all that I heard in the early period of Granado from his children, it was not Italians who were sustaining that business, particularly Jews and particularly just non-Italians just coming from the loop like show people would be, that would be on the map to go to, to go to Granado's. And who were show people, but people from the East Coast, and maybe they wanted the meals that they could get on the East Coast. So where would you go for pizza in Chicago? We're really in the 30s, only really one place would have any brand name for Pete's in Chicago. And that would be Granados on Taylor Street. And that's how they marketed themselves. That was essentially their brand. It's interesting to me below because of the cultural, the differences, and this gets into back into why, you know, why New York City is different than Chicago is different. Even if you were to look at telephones and the businesses, particularly the bakers with telephones, Chicago bakers, Italian bakers, had telephones in the 19-teens. That would be unheard of for virtually any baker in Manhattan or any of the boroughs to have a phone even into the 30s sometimes. That didn't even happen. So 
it goes into, well, if they didn't need telephones, maybe all of their business was within basically a block. Whereas in Chicago, their suppliers were farther out and maybe they would have needed that much, much more. Maybe there's some other structural or fi fi financial reason why they would have needed that. But I think it's one of those clues that I think density really plays a critical role in why New York City is so different, that you get, get this restaurant traffic. I mean, these early pizzerias in New York City were open virtually all night. And I didn't mention this, but, you know, uh, it was a men's club there. If you were a woman and you never would have gone there unchaperoned, and even to go there and chaperone, if you were Italian, it would have looked down upon. Uh, there's some direct evidence towards this. So, you know, there's, you know, what made the news? Well, if they had a fight in a pizzeria, that would have made the news. So it's a little bit of a biased thing to say, oh, they had fought in there a lot. But it was, from all that you can read between the lines, it was a sort of a men's cafe club that they would have their wine. Probably not from that pizzeria did not have a license, but they would bring it in from other sources and drink it while talking or conversing or sing singing opera was huge then. And that would be their night out. Uh, it's interesting to go back after prohibition happened, you see the signage on the windows and they make a deliberate effort to say, ladies invited, you know, you can come through a separate entrance. You can sit in the booth. You know, you don't have to sit in the bar and all that. Um, it's it's sort of like they're trying to move the pendulum the other way deliberately to say, we're not that bad anymore. We've changed our ways, but believe us, come do business with us. Um, anyway, just a small thing that uh, I think is, I mean, we get so few clues as to what it was really like to go to a pizzeria. We really have to look really carefully at what these were like. Interesting enough, there's no evidence of Maloney, except for one example of that he was actually in, well, actually two, but really one, that he was actually in a partnership. So Maloney probably wasn't the type to keep the long hours. Um, another thing that's interesting of what they needed to do, they needed to combine the businesses. So if the pizzas were popular, say, between 5 p.m. and 12 a.m. or something like that, what would they do from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. or something like that? Maybe you would you convert your pizzeria to more groceries. So you would sell hard cheeses or sauces or olive oils and things like that. Anything you could, because you were on the hook for all that rent, you needed to have a productive of the businesses. And if during the day you weren't getting a lot of flow, you might have to convert your business or bring your business out on the sidewalk. And there's some evidence for that. Um, so Maloney is in produce at times. Uh, but he's in the same, he's in an, an Italian pies too. So all you know, all at the same spot, all at the same time. Um, so it's just a different model. I think there's, it's indicative that you, you do see a little bit with these split, the businesses. Importantly, they are making dough, as far as we know, for the primary purpose of the pizza. So they're not becoming a bread bakery at this point, but they're sort of diversifying away from pizza, at least initially, um, which I think is, understandable. They weren't perhaps fully confident on the business um, opportunities and just selling pizza straight. Uh, but uh, yeah. So the, the person who did, did bring up the pineapple uh, mm -hmm. said that traditionalist Northern Italians love to criticize pineapple. So, so there, there's your, there's your moment. And Monica Ang 
comment, same with my grandpa's downtown restaurant, Chinese restaurant. I'm not sure if that's talking about the pineapple or we're talking about, you know, women not necessarily going into them alone, if you well, want to clarify. Right. Um, well, so, yeah, no, I was talking about the women to overcompensate after prohibition was lifted. Um <clears throat> Obviously, it was to their advantage to lose the stigma of having a pizzeria to become just a boy's place or a dangerous place at all. Um, but I will say one other intriguing thing is that you do, there's like three or four examples of combining, and hold this, Chinese restaurant with a pizzeria at the same spot at the same time. So, so I have a question for you. Yeah. Uh, well, two of them. This proto cut, I've seen that pizza style cut in, you know, the Quad Cities and a Giant. Right. I didn't know it had a name until tonight. Right. It didn't have a name. I made up that name. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Because, yeah. but I do Please. consider it the most diplomatic way of serving a pizza. <laughs> uh, because you know, my, my family will grab all the edges and then suddenly, you know, <laughs> somebody stuck with the middle, but the question I had had to go back to your reference to uh, organized crime Uh-oh. and pizzas. Was that related to cheese or something else? Yeah. So this gets into, uh, yeah, I'll just say the name grande um, cheese has been a name that if you read the books, allegedly they've been associated with organized crime. It's in books. So I mean, I'm not breaking any of the, the news here and during the 1940s, there was a series of uh, mob assassinations, essentially, and uh, a large proportion of them were associated with grande cheese. Um, I haven't pursued that story that hard, but uh, and I didn't really think I was going to talk about this, but it's fine. Uh, I did look on, and they did have their headquarters for grande cheese. They, I think they incorporated in... Uh, early 40s, I'm sure, but exactly what, what year it escapes me. I know enough that Pizzeria Paterno, um, the proprietor of Paterno's was on their corporate board and the Sparga proprietor was on the corporate board. And I talked to the Sparga family, not about this, but they brought it up on their own and said, you know, once our father found out that he was on the board and put on the board by these guys, he said, take my name off as soon as possible. And that is indeed what exactly happened so yeah there were some very murky shady things and i've been told that so the whole thing with the organized crime and milk is they had these trucks and uh, bottles and stuff that they had from prohibition era that they had to fill up because now they couldn't be in the so they went into the milk business and with milk what's the nearest thing with milk but cheese i mean what's not true or that I haven't found any evidence for is that if they were going into the pizza business or trying to stimulate pizzerias with to buy their cheeses, you would think that they would go initially to the mozzarella business, but you don't see them really going into the mozzarella business in the 40s. So, you know, I suppose they could go into the mozzarella business or something like that. But it's one of those stories that it sounds so good that it's, I'm suspicious of it. And I really haven't found true evidence for that, direct evidence for that. Certainly all that existed and there was a huge um, hubbub about grande cheese in the forties and the fifties with what they were doing. And um, um, the, you know, they did have people traditionally associated with organized crime leadership on their board. 
and on their um, the leadership. So, uh, but that all went away in the 40s and uh, then it became something else, which is a different animal. But I think they're still private now. So allegedly to all this stuff, um, um, but they still exist. And in fact, they're highly regarded in the industry. Um, uh, but they don't like to talk about this particular side of their history that much, I think. <laughs> Understandable. Right. Well, I think um, Monica uh, clarified, I think pine- pineapple uh, wasn't something about, you know, interest to the Chinese people. But there is a question from um, Taste of New Haven. He said, you mentioned pine was not a popular word in Chicago for pizza. But what about other names like tomato pie, uh, pizza, a pizza? I hope I'm saying it's right. Right. Now, Colin, so in um, New Haven, their pizzerias often are spelled um, A-Pizza, the phonetically way, A-P-I-Z-Z-Z-Z-A, which to the Nablidan dialect would be Abitz. So they, it's supposed to be a substitute for La Pizza, the pizza, so they don't use the L, it's just Abitz. So uh, the way the Neapolitan dialect, they don't use the vowel at the end of the word traditionally, and they change a lot of things about it. So it's very confusing at times. But uh, on the street, so to answer his question, on the street, the Italians in the near the west side would have said a beats all the time. It would have been just by the New Haven. They just didn't have it on their signage like they did in New Haven. Why they didn't, who knows? But they didn't do it like that. Uh, there's no, uh, what did they use it for? So I think what's happening is that they're getting, pizza is becoming popular in Chicago when it's starting to break over and cross over into non-Italian communities. And not just non-Italian communities, but non-Campania area communities. So by, by the time that you're getting these first operators, for, so for example, the owners of Sparga, my memory is they came from Sicily. Well. Yeah, that's why it, it was already a popular concept and established business to go into the pizzeria business. If you were to do the same thing in, in the early 20s, you wouldn't have had the same effect. They wouldn't have had the same confidence that they go, oh, I'm going to go into the pizzeria, the business, and I'm Sicilian. Wouldn't have happened. Or oh, I mean, it's very unlikely you would have happened. So you're just getting, because of the time that it became popular in Chicago, you're getting a different type of proprietor one that's not as Campania focused, when it's not as, doesn't really have a bakery background and that does not have, um, uh, is not going into the uh, business organically from his culture. He's not been really a consumer of the type of pizza. So on the other side of that, you lose a lot of the tradition. That's true. Hence, that's why we have, um, uh, tavern style the pizza and that's why we have deep dish too because people were not coming from these traditional backgrounds i mean it's no secret that rick ricardo was northern italian and ike Sil was certainly not even italian so in another way it sort of frees your mind up to experiment more and to be more accepting of different types of pizza on the other side of that experiment is fine but to get real classic things it doesn't happen every day you're losing something at the same time so you know uh, basically, people were going to Chicago pizzerias into the business, uh, not organically as to where they were in the past, but because they wanted to make money, I think. And 
to make that, they really didn't have the standards that they would have had historically in the East Coast, the cities. That's a little bit hard in Chicago, but I think there's actual, I think I could back that up a little bit. Um, anyway, so yeah, good question, Colin. Well, I don't see any more questions, so I think you might have... No questions? You might have exhausted the topic, which is terrific, because oh you, you certainly do know a lot. No, let's no go questions. longer, Beth. Let's go longer. <laughs> well, somebody did say you are a great inspiration. Really? Isn't For what? I don't... Well, I, that was Taste of New Haven. Probably... I think well, it's a very friend. nice compliment. And we're, of course he is. And we're cut, We're looking forward to uh, May 13th. Yes, yes. I mean, if more. I could say one thing, that's going to be a fun one that uh, has all sorts of uh, funny things that happen to the business. I mean, it's a different style of story in that it's not a family story as much because it wasn't a sole proprietorship. It was a partnership. And uh, it wasn't just a partnership, but there was many the players around and they're still in business now that telling different stories. And uh, I just hope at the end of the time I tell it, people aren't going to hate me for it. But it's a pretty it. standard story. But it's just, uh, you know, well, but a lot of this stuff started, I, I thought, you know, there's got to be a different explanation for things. And there's got to be sources out there that we can exploit and really get much closer to what actually happened. And what really happened with me is that when I first started to do the research on Deep Dish, I was just learning ge genealogy. I mean, I really knew nothing and where all the sources were. And then I was lucky enough at the right time to get some breaks and to find some cool stuff that I knew at the time that it was going to be a more serious project because I was finding stuff that had never been found before. And that was really exciting. And um, so... But it's a complicated story, and there's still uncertainties, obviously, out there that we really don't know exactly when people happen to appear in the back of the kitchen in 1940, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, hopefully we can find a lot more, but it's getting, uh, I think we're going to come around to what happened. And uh, hopefully, I, I just want people to, I think the big thing, a lot of these things happened that, that I found that these stories, these histories can become sticky at times and that we're so used to like the, the Lombardi story. I mean, there's absolutely no evidence for that anymore, but it's still out there. You go find it on Wikipedia. Now, I'm not passionate against Lombardi at all. He's a historical figure, but, you know, let's tighten up the sourcing a little bit more and really find out. I mean, we can Google this history now and we can get much closer to what actually happened and uh yeah i mean i don't know it's whatever i mean i'm gonna put my stuff all on the web with all the sources i have and people can reject that and uh or they can say oh okay now i get it but uh the deepest story should be a great one i really do think that should be an interesting story and by the way, somebody, uh, Ingrid, uh, commented, uh, one of the most interesting pizzas she's ever had was from Leona's, and it was topped with pasta and tomato sauce. Starch on starch. Wow. Uh, I've never, I, I can't say I've ever been to Leona's in my life, and I've been to Chicago all the time. Uh, I think in Quad Cities, I think they also have a, a pasta variant, but I'm, yeah, I Yeah, I just... Yeah, it's interesting that the 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 uh, 
the uh, I, I recall it's not lazy or complacent, but it's just the sticky that we sort of get the same. I mean, it's changing now dramatically, I have to say, and I haven't been out in a long time. But um, I, my sense of it is that the new ge- ge- generation that is coming on is really changing the styles in Chicago dramatically. Uh, but I think there's still more to do. And, you know, there's things like Detroit and there's things like uh, Roman style and all that that is becoming a uh, sort of standard thing that you know where to get your Roman the pizzas now. So uh, things are much more sophisticated than they were even 10 years ago. So go figure. But those will be easier to track than what you were dealing with. Well, uh, certainly with, I mean, certainly all the changes that, that have been happening in the last 10 years because of uh, online stuff and cell phones, we'll be able to get exactly when the Roman the pizza came to Chicago and all that stuff. I don't know how many pe- people are going to care, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm really still fascinated about the old time that the, uh, the, uh, the original, how things actually started and started small and then got distorted and that misinterpreted when things were just so at the time would have been, I mean, so many times I've talked to families and they've told me things that in the context of their life are absolutely, totally insignificant. But in the context of all of my story that I've been looking at are vital clues. And you just have to sit through and talk to them for like three or four hours before they bring out their, the binders. And this Granado photo that you see in front of you was after about nine or 10 hours of talking to his daughter. And at the final ninth hour, she brought out a box and I was paging through a binder and I turned a page and I found that photograph. And I, I thought to myself, well, that's the cover. I wasn't going to say that. Thank God I didn't say that. But uh, I thought, well, that's the photo I've been waiting for. But it, I couldn't have rushed her. I, I would have had to, I, I needed to sit through that whole thing. And, and, you know, it's fine. It's just, you need to be patient. There's nothing like, this whole project has sort of a pace of its own, even though it's sort of uh, a spiritual thing or a, um, a, a nebulous thing to think about. There's some aspects of this that I couldn't rush it because the the photos aren't out there. The the things have been, been digitized, and because I can't get the one piece of information, I can't get the I can't get the next one too. So the time, the 12 years has been well spent. <laughs> and uh, I think you'll see it in some of the stories that I post that uh, are not going to be just about New York, which I've talked about a lot, and not just about Chicago and Deep Dish or the proto uh, Italian cut. But uh, for example, I've got one uh, story that I just have been working on the last week. Uh, I'm going to call it, my proto title of it is The Woman Who Saw the Future. And it's about a young woman in an East Coast city who basically had a flash of insight in a pizzeria. And uh, basically, if you would have followed what she would have said, you would have been ahead of all the other people by 10 years. And uh, from her background, she saw through a lot of the things that these Italians weren't seeing. And it just took as part of their everyday culture, but she saw the significance of how it could be popular in America just in a flash. And she was just in the right position to put it down on paper. And I'm going to be profiling her. She never, she did get married, but she didn't have any kids. And she divorced soon after she got married. And uh, luckily just, uh, what was it, last night, or maybe it was today, I'm not even sure. But I got a, 
an email back from an archive saying they found her job application and her resume, which means I know her high school and how long she spent at a particular college that I'm hoping to find a picture. That's all I want, just a picture of her at that time period. So it's just things like that that would have, I mean, these were archives that are 60 years old that why would they keep a job application of someone who's been dead for over 40 years? Uh, but they've got it. And, uh, you know, stuff like that are just are fun. I mean, it's fun. And I think ultimately with enough work, uh, it can be something that the, um, the sum total of all this stuff is that I actually do think it's, it's much more important ultimately. I think business history is more important than at least I understand it to be. That the business history that I typically read, I don't read a lot of business histories, but I don't see why. I think it's extremely important things to document how businesses are actually formed, what was in the past, how they were formed. And I do I do read some corporate histories, and I know enough about some of the histories that they're just plain wrong, and they're not enough detail. And they, they just didn't they didn't get granular enough and get deep enough in, into the subject to really have something to take away from it and say, you know, as a society, maybe we should be kind of learning from this stuff to say, if some cultures are do really doing well, why? And if some aren't doing well, why is that? And really study them um, in a deep way. And I, I, know, I, I hope I don't have to explain how important that is. I mean, that's like vital stuff. That uh, I just think that there's case studies that could be done. For example, I'm not Italian American. I'm, you know, I come from a different ethnicity. Why did it take me to do this stuff? You know, there is Italian American scholars throughout. Not a huge amount of them, but that story was out there for a long time. Was it documented? No, not really at all. And uh, you know, why did that happen? So. Anyway, uh, I, I do think ultimately I want to get to some deeper aspects of it. Not initially, because you know, uh, you know, the really goal of this stuff is just to document it and to preserve the history and to get it on the web for free, by the way, and so that uh, I can get it to, to the widest audiences possible. And uh, hopefully, uh, we can take away some deeper the lessons from it uh, in terms of how to organize ourselves. Uh, so that's my two cents. Oh, you made all these archivists out there just thrilled. Hey, they're lonely people, and so am I. And uh, <laughs> we're made for each other. And uh, no, they're nice, uh, the people. I, I have to say, in the 12 years I've been doing this, I was almost mugged in Chicago once coming back from the uh, Chicago Public Library. I had a bad experience in Boston. I had a, just because Trenton is a frightening city, I had a nice, sweet thing, but it could have been bad very fast in Trenton. Uh, but for those handful of times, it's been extremely enjoyable. I can't say I've had really a bad day uh, that often. Unfortunately, I had an extended family uh, who's out there in California and Washington and New York in particular. I have a sister who lives in Manhattan that if she wasn't out there with a, a place to stay while she toward Europe or wherever I could have three or four of the weeks in Manhattan just to sit and go through all the archives. Uh, I wouldn't have done this project really. Uh, it takes that amount of effort to do that. And uh, luckily enough, we have people like Scott and Colin and Kendall out there too, who are helping, who we can bounce off ideas off of and who are into it just as much as I'm into it. And uh, it's fun stuff because they're, they're nice 
people and we're sharing and everyone wants just the most accurate story out there and we're fascinated by it. And uh, it's, it's a very positive experience and I don't take that for granted at all. It didn't have to be like this at all. So uh, it's been great. So hopefully we can uh, tie a ribbon on this uh, story and I can get it on my blog because I've been uh, procrastinated for about two years. <laughs> and uh, I think, I think you, you'll enjoy it. So hopefully you appreciated the talk today and uh, I'll see you in May. We'll see you in 90 days. Thank you so much. And sorry about the link problem earlier, but uh, life happens. Thank you so much and have a good evening. You too, Kathy. And everyone out there in the audience, thank you so much for, for, for coming. Thank you.